Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> And welcome to episode number 910 of the Wicked Library. That's the one after 909 for our Beatles fans. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. As you probably know, the Wicked Library relies on the support of our patrons and website members to keep making the show. If you want to be a part of helping us keep making it, you can sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at the wickedlibrary.com. We truly appreciate your help in making the show sustainable. Our supporters do get wicked fun rewards, like access to our archives, ad-free shows, bonus episodes, and more. For those of you in the Atlanta area, or nearby, how would you like to see an episode of the Wicked Library performed live? That's right, we're going to have a live show in the Atlanta area, specifically in Lawrenceville, this October 14th. So if you show up, what are you going to get? Well, you get a brand new tale by Christopher Long, one by K.B. Goddard, and a tale co-authored by me and Nelson W. Piles that features Victoria from The Lift. And on top of that, you're going to get to see Jeanette Andromeda do live painting at the show. She's going to bring her paint and easels, and she's going to paint an image inspired by each story. So not only do you get to hear the stories live, you'll also get to see Jeanette bring the stories to life by painting for you live right there at the show. Brought to you by Explore Gwinnett and the Aurora Theater. Get more details and pick up your tickets today at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash live. Plus, we're going to be releasing our first ever written anthology for the Wicked Library, and the librarian willing, copies of that book will be available at the show. And please, if you enjoy the stories you hear on the show, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It keeps them making more. You can learn more about everyone who helped create today's show, along with links to their other work, on their bio pages at thewickedlibrary.com. As always, our tales are scored by our good friend Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Now, without further ado, let's get wicked. Hello, kiddies! Have a seat, but don't relax. I am your librarian, and this time there's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the light. It's darker than ever now. Stop screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and kick off today's show with The Split Rail Fence by Aaron Vleck, told by David Alt. The Split Rail Fence and the Ferocious Old Man by Aaron Vleck. It may happen that you retire to your bed earlier than usual. You toss and turn, unable to relax into that deep, refreshing cloud of slumber. Hours tick past, yet you remain awake. Whatever you do, rise not from your bed to stroll about the grounds as you sometimes do, for you may wander far beyond your orchard, So taken are you with the gentle breeze and the fragrant grasses as they wilt with dew. In time you may come to the pathway that leads to the village and other places well known to you. You may marvel at the moonlight as it falls across the path, shining, luminescent, and so lovely to behold. You will forget the purpose of your nocturnal wandering and fail to notice the split rail fence that runs along the pathway though you have not seen any such fence before. 
As you continue on your way, you do not notice that you have taken a wrong turn when there was no turn to take along that solitary road. The trees sway in the darkness, brushing your face lazily with their pale leaves, and you continue on, refreshed and mindless of the eyes upon you, until he passes by, a ferocious old man fiendishly peddling an ancient bicycle. His tattered cloak catches the light of the moon and you stumble out of the way before he runs you down. You're startled, surprised to see anyone out this late at night. The old man is unknown to you, but can that be? A stranger in these parts where everyone is known to one another? Be warned against any wish to retrace your steps and return home just yet the sight of the split-rail fence finally causing you alarm as you behold it for the first time. If you do wander back down that moonlit path, you will in time come to your home, the garden doors wide open as you left them. You will climb the stairs to your chamber and crawl into bed and fall into a deep, relaxing sleep. However, on the morrow you will meet your wife in the village for tea and she will insist upon a new shop that just opened called the Split Rail Fence, and over scones and marmalade she will complain of having just been almost run down by a ferocious old man on an ancient bicycle. Your countenance will pale, and your wife will ask if you are ill. You will brush her off and make some excuse to return home, where you will once again climb the stairs and take to your bed for a nap, certain that you are still dreaming from the night before. You will slumber unawares and dream not of anything that you can recall. Time passes, and your wife calls you down to supper. You dress and descend the stairs and join her where your oldest son has appeared for a surprise visit from London. His presence is a welcome distraction until he mentions the new book he has just published with Routledge, a novel entitled The Split Rail Fence. You will start as with a great fright and tip over your wine glass, sending the footman scurrying. You will apologize profusely, but your hand will shake and you will attempt to hide it from their gaze. Your son will tell you how he had seen a most curious sight out on the road, a ferocious-looking old man in a tattered cloak on an ancient bicycle. You will feign illness and beg their forgiveness as you once again take to your bed. You climb the stairs to your chamber and once again collapse onto your bed where you fall immediately into a troubled sleep. You begin to suspect your mistake out upon that moonlit path, but your mind reels at its meaning. The day breaks anew and you pray that all is well, that you are awake at last and shall hear and see no more of the nighttime haunts that worry your daylight hours. You dress and join your wife and son, and the breakfast salon is filled with sun and the fragrance of freshly baked confections. There is a light rap at the door. Rising, you recognize your neighbor, a man of no small means, who has a hand in the affairs of the countryside and its maintenance. He tells you about some repairs to begin on the split-rail fence that runs through the lane, and how the ferocious old man who lives across the meadow had taken a turn and crashed into the thing with his ancient bicycle. Your family takes this news in stride, and make no note of the fact that there is no split-rail fence on the lane, nor is there any ferocious old man across any meadow bordering your sizable estate. You make no apologies as you run from them, out the garden doors, through the orchard and down to the lane. You run and run and run, and soon, impossibly, it is dark, and you see that split-rail fence running as far as the eye can see up and down the lane. You run as fast as you can, for you can just see him up ahead, the ferocious old man peddling fiendishly on his ancient bicycle. You see his coattails flapping in the breeze, and you know you must overtake him. You must pass him in the lane and never turn back the way you came. If you are to truly awaken, you must follow the lane to its end, where the split-rail fence is no more, 
and the ferocious old man has passed forever from view on his ancient bicycle, and the moonlight ceases to fall upon the path in such a way that you fail to notice that you are, in fact, still asleep. Up next, we have another tale by Aaron Vleck, this one called Hyena Woman. And this tale is told incredibly well by Denise Michelle Johnson, and you'll get to see Denise perform live as one of our cast members at our Live Atlanta show. My people have always hunted the banks of the Happy River. Since the before times, We've pitched our tents between the deep rushes at the water's edge and the tall yellow grasses that hide the ones we hunt. We wear their hides, their meat keeps us strong, and their pelts warm us at night. Their teeth and claws make us fierce, and their many dark feathers help us fly among the clouds with our ancestors as they chase the gods towards the stars. People from the dark hills and the broad green valleys come to hear our tales at the great fairs where we go to buy and sell. Every night in our camp, we build a big fire, big enough for all my people to sit around and to stay warm when the evening chill creeps silently from the happy river on the pale green mists. The fire wards off the things that slink and sliver and bite by night, and warns the many eyes that watch us from the darkness that we too are watchful. Knew the warning, do not stray. Not child, not woman, not man, set no foot beyond the fire's protection into the dark night. Those we hunt by day are hunted by others who prowl by night. Those who wander into the grasses and the reeds after the sun hides his face beyond the stars, never to return to us. It's only fair, my father said. We hunt and eat their sons by day, but the night is theirs, and in their world, we are their rightful meat. When I was a child, I asked my mother about the eyes that watch, but she would never speak of them. My brother said, the watching eyes belonged to spirits of animals we had hunted, who now waited to capture our souls. He said other things watched us too, and they were the real reason for the fire. He had heard someone calling his name one night when he went to release his water, and had almost gone to see who it was, before my father dragged him back into the light of the fire. I asked my mother about this. She laughed and said her son was just trying to scare me. But her face stopped laughing and she scolded me for listening to him. Then she went off to the crone's women's tent. I was not allowed to enter. Old ones who no longer tended to the needs and whims of children and husbands. My mother was only allowed to visit that tent on sacred days when yet another woman gave up her old life and was welcome to come live among the oldest women. All I knew of that tent was that day and night you could hear singing and laughter, and the women cooked for each other and feasted into the night as they chanted and called out to the gods by names we dared not speak. Their true names known only to themselves and their chosen friends. I knew my mother longed for that day when my father was no more, when I was old enough to weave my own tent and my brother went alone to the sending cave to carve his great spear and take up the hunt with his brothers. Of what she saw and did with these old women, she never spoke. But her eyes twinkled and she smiled when she thought upon it. One night... Just like any other night, but the day before the celebration of my birth 14 summers ago, 
we were gathered before the fire, listening to stories. Our tales are never told the same way twice, for fear the spirits might learn them and know our secret ways. I lay curled up in a pelt next to my father, dozing, warm and safe in his arms. I watched as a sudden spray of sparks broke from the fire and rose into the night sky. I roused myself and looked around. There were so many eyes watching from within the wall of the yellow grasses. I thought there must be animals by the hundreds out there. I heard a noise then, the sound of my mother calling me. I said her name, then jerked awake. I had been sleeping and only dreamed. I wriggled out of my father's arms and I saw that he was asleep and snoring now. Everyone but me was asleep and the fire had died down to nothing but a pile of soft red embers. I heard someone calling my name again. A woman, but it was not my mother. It was a clear, bright voice that I did not know. So I stood up to see who it could be. I looked all around, then walked to the edge of the ring of light cast by the dying embers. It was so much colder there. The wall of yellow grasses was now a sea of eyes, but there was no movement. I took one step outside the protective ring of light. The eyes parted before me, and a narrow, fresh beaten path, no wider than my own body, lay before me. I turned and looked back at the fire and the sleeping forms of my father and brother. Then I looked at the wall of grasses on either side of me, each filled with bright, unblinking eyes. I glanced again at my father and remembered his warning. The voice came again, sweet, like a reed flute, like my mother's when she sang me to sleep in her arms as a babe. There was a gentle rustling in the grass around me and the sound of many small feet running. Without knowing why, I started running down that little path, the many feet now running alongside me, keeping pace with my own. At the end of the narrow trail of flattened grasses, a woman sat in the soft white sand beneath a dead acacia tree. Her long, slender legs folded gracefully beneath her body, like those of a young gazelle. I had never seen such a beautiful woman. A fire raged before her in the darkest of nights, and she stared into the secret heart of the blaze as his tendrils lit hungrily towards the canopy of stars. It's a kindred soul to her, this fire, and she knows him well. He's her protector, her mate, and she's never from his sight, or the warmth of the showers upon her body, like kisses. How I knew these things, I could not say. Sparks erupted everywhere in an angry red spray, flinging themselves into the darkness, carried aloft on the night's currents. So many of them, they cried out as one, then disappeared into a black chasm that swallowed them from above. The woman was digging in the fire with the sharpened tip of her painted stick. She sang words the grandmothers taught her long ago, loud or soft, in whispers or in silence. Some she told from memory, others she made up as she went along only to be forgotten the moment they left her lips, while some were nothing more 
than the sounds drawn from her soul by the fire itself, as from a haunted well. She rocked back and forth, but it was not cold where she is. This is how she remembers, how she knows to stay on the ground and not jump up and fly away with her brothers, the sparks, as they were called into the company of the stars. I realized these words were in my thoughts. The woman was speaking to me in a tongue I did not know, but did know just the same. I hid at the hymn in the folds of darkness, watching her fire and the strange light that flew before her. I listened to the sound of my heart trembling like a small animal in a trap. I tried hard not to make any sound, though I was not afraid. I couldn't pull my eyes away from the woman, but I didn't dare turn and flee back to the safety of my own fire, back to the warmth of my people. The woman looked directly into my eyes. She knew I was there. I'm always there on nights like this. When the dreams are sent into the world and her children come from all around to gather at her side. There are others there too. So many others hiding in the sand nearby, waiting. The woman's black eyes stared at me from the perch at the fire's rim. Black. The woman's face and arms, darker than any night sky, was her skin. I had never seen anyone with skin so dark, so smooth and unbroken by any blemish. Maybe this is why I did not flee, but sat transfixed staring at the woman, full of dread, full of longing, hesitating to get up and run into the darkness away from the woman and the terrible fire she tends. The woman was wrapped in yards and yards of indigo fabric, dark as early night when a full moon rises and the first star appears. There was a great knot of this cloth wrapped around her head, and she wore a long blue veil that trailed over the pale sand like a river. The many bracelets and necklaces that adorned her body were fashioned of silver, white as milk and blinding to the eye when the light of the moon spilled upon their surface. They were worked in fine and fantastically intricate shapes, emblazoned with designs and symbols unfamiliar to my eye. These were not the markings of my people. They were not the signs we paint on wood and stone upon our bodies. The woman rose to her feet and threw her arms out wide as the yards and yards of indigo flew away from her body like a flock of monstrous wings. Come, gal. Come now. It's cold under the stars. Come underneath my robes where it is warm and wise and you'll be safe from those who prowl. The woman sang in an unknown tongue that pierced my heart like the lance of an ibex hunter when he spots the kill standing silent and alone on the horizon. The exquisite bell-like tinkling of the women's bracelets filled the air as she raised her arms and called me to the fire. I trembled in longing and uncertainty but shook my head. So many times it's been like this cold, wind so strong I fear it would drag me away. But still, I did not 
approach the woman. I looked back in the direction of the fire. My people and my father dozing with the other men and women. It was quiet there and the grasses were still and no wind filled the air. Again and again and again had I been there. I remembered always the same, the fire, the paralyzing fear, the woman more beautiful than it is possible to contain within any human form. Like a great cat stalking her prey, the woman slowly began walking toward my place of hiding. Her eyes fast upon me. The tinkling of stars like glass in the wind drowned out the jangling of the silver bracelets. She was smiling, this woman. Her teeth flashed white and sharp in petals of laughter. I could not move. I stood frozen to the ground as though my feet had become strong roots that penetrate deep into the body of the earth. Even blink to hide the face of my soul from the violet black eyes that caressed and held me fast. The great folds of the women's robes opened before me, and I looked inside for the very first time. But there was nothing there, only emptiness and stars, and a darkness more terrible than any night. Then I slept. I awakened. The moon was gone, and all around me was the press of thick, coarse fur and snuffling of many warm, furry muscles that probed my body. There was panting and yipping here, and the snap of teeth and the fleas that bite. The woman, the beautiful woman, was gone. But there, beyond her fire, now long dead and cold, a huge hyena, the color of midnight, paced back and forth on the horizon. She was heavy with milk, and those around me ran to her. They were hungry. I looked down and saw I was naked. The clothes my mother made me were gone. No more than blood-soaked rats. Underneath, I was all covered in coarse yellow and brown fur that was my own, that grew from my body. I was hungry, and I ran after the others to the beautiful, Big hyena as she paced on the horizon. We are her children. She had called us to her. I could still just barely see back down the narrow path. My father and brother lay sleeping, safe within the embrace of warmth from the campfire. Never again will I look back along that trail that leads to my people, to the stories they told to keep us from straying beyond the safety of the campfire. I have found my own story now, not the story of others told around the campfire. This is the story I will write anew each time the moon rises and the tall grasses wave silently in the sweet breeze and the fresh smell of prey blood is on the night wind. I raise my face into the darkness and catch the scent. I yip and howl and follow the others into the night where the prey hides waiting. And hyena woman, our mother, points the way. When I was a girl of no more than 14 summers, I was given a story. It is the tale of Hyena Woman.
It is my story. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come. <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> Okay, so before we dive into our next story, I just want to take a quick minute and talk to you about one of the sponsors that helps make our show possible, our friends over at Warby Parker. And you've heard us talk about Warby Parker before. They're a really cool company, and they were founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage inspired with a contemporary twist, which is really cool. Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. Available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores, glasses start at just $95, and that includes your prescription lenses. You can head over to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked to order your free home try-ons today. Nelson W. Piles tried this out so we could tell you all about it. So what happened was he went online and took their quiz, picked out five frames that he thought he might dig, they sent him on out to him, and he got to try him out right in his house. He said he really liked the fact that he didn't have to drive out and bring the whole family with him. He got the box delivered right to his front door, opened him up, and did a little fashion show for his wife and kids. And he even brought it over and let me take a look at him before he picked him out. And the cool thing about that was, as soon as everybody kind of agreed on which ones they thought looked best, he just picked those ones out. They come with a prepaid label already in the box. So even if you don't like any of them, you can ship them all back. Or if you like one, you can ship them back and tell them which ones you want to have made. Piles actually got himself a pair of sunglasses, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked and get mine. The reason I'm excited about it is they now come with blue light filtering. That's right. Blue light filtering lenses are now available and they're perfect for folks like me that spend a ton of time in front of the computer. Now, I'm not going to get sunglasses, but I am going to get the blue light filters because I stare at a computer screen all day for writing, producing the Wicked Library, the Lyft, the Private Collector. All I do is stare at a computer screen. So these are going to be awesome. You can get yours if you want to check them out too. Head over to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked to order your free home try-ons today. Closing out the show today, we have a tale by J.J. Morgan, a madman's musing on peace and exoricide, told by our good friend Graham Rowett whose voice you will also hear at our Atlanta show. Gently sway the furs outside our forest home in the near dawn, and emotionless I sit here in front of our screen glass door. The shoulders of my nightshirt are wet, sticky, as is my face. In my left hand I hold a silver-handled switchblade knife. Engraved on the handle is the face of a small clown, Ever have I been one for theatrics. Its steel is cold and sharp, and it reminds me vaguely of an operating instrument. It is a deep red. These woods are silent. Even the birds are silent. Inside, I feel at peace. For the past three weeks, I have been planning to kill my wife. We have no children or pets, so I'm not afraid of leaving anyone motherless and she has no family and very few friends. I do not say these things to justify my intent or to apply a veneer of rationality, but merely to relay the fact that she is a solitary person, as am I. Simply put, there are very few people that would miss her, and even fewer me. As for rationality, well, that is a tricky subject. It is the strangest thing, clear-mindedness, I mean, of course, I believe myself to be rational, as I'm sure all madmen do, yet gainfully I found myself ruminating on the demise of the woman whom I have loved with all my heart for nearing on sixteen years. Rationally, I know that she has done nothing wrong, therefore any retaliation on my part is unjustified, but still my plans of uxoricide do not falter. It is her R's, the way she pronounces her R's. They carry throatiness, a vile phlegm that she summons from the deepest recesses of her throat and spews into the air like a toxin. Upon the utterances of words like roost or croup 
or crayon. She gains a French parlance, a repugnant false voice, and I fear that if I am forced to listen to this sonic transformation until the end of my life, I will go mad. And I do not mean mad as I am now, this cursory state of insecurity where I can still recognize reason, but a mind-shedding madness, an abstraction that will render me groundless in a whirlwind of my own thoughts. I do so fear such madness. So it is in self-preservation that I prepare myself. We met during a Russian theater seminar, Chekhov and the like, at a prestigious Northern California university. My third year, her first. Personally, I find it hard to believe there's anything less romantic than Chekhov, yet it proved a kindly incubator to our relationship. Thenceforth, mutual respect was the name of the game, so to speak. She respected my acting ability, theater is the craft to which I devote myself, and I respected her close reading and analytic abilities. They were the golden years, and it was truly wonderful. Our mutual talents in academia, after a tedious stretch of high school pedagogy, led to us both receiving offers from a small, yet relatively esteemed liberal arts university some thirty miles from our current home. It is said that the administration searches for husband and wife candidates to help deter the possibility that one of the pair will leave to another institution. But in our case, we were both quite qualified. By this time, my dreams of thespianism had waned and were replaced by love of instruction. Our relationship was, and still is, for as long as I can control myself, a solitary one. There is a silence in these woods, a silence I seldom enjoy breaking. She must feel the same, or she did until recently. Now I am weary of her every word. Only once I have broached the subject with her. Months ago, like the metastasization of a cancerous cyst, I began to awaken to her speech deficiency. Randall, she called me. Dinner is ready. I had spent the majority of the day tucked away in my office, as was my wont, and had been preparing a series of Stanislavskian sense memory techniques for my first years. Needless to say, the day was long and dry, and my nerves were quite frazzled. Duck again, my dear? I said after biting into the fowl. Yes, roast duck with red bean remoulade. Each R pricked me like a needle behind the eyes. You know, dearest, you have the strangest little tick. I'm not sure if you've noticed. I took a sip of wine, a gift from a friend's winery near my alma mater. But you pronounce your R's in the most peculiar fashion. Really, I never noticed. She returned to her meal without looking up. Quite so, my dear. You seem to flare your throat sometimes when you pronounce your R's. She said nothing, but fool that I was, I did not perceive her consternation. I don't know if you've always done it, but I'm only now noticing it. In the theater, we would call this a tick of, Do we have to do this now, Randall? Again, that R pricked at me, but not so bad as the interruption. I had to put up with Professor Colm's antics all day, and I'm really not in the mood for one of your criticisms. Oh no, dearest, I did not intend for it to be a criticism at all. I was merely remarking. We both knew she was right. It was a criticism. We ate the rest of the meal in silence. Looking back, I suppose I was overly critical in those days, near the onset of my frustration, but I have serious doubts as to whether or not it was my fault. How is one supposed to react when the breeze and regimen of one's life is thrown asunder? I had lived for fifteen years in blissful silence, sharing my solitude with the one woman that enjoyed the quiet as much as I. And then, six months ago, she was granted tenure. Of course she was overjoyed, as I myself was, though I had been granted tenure three years prior, but she felt the incessant need to celebrate, dare I say, to brag about her accomplishment. At first, I thought this uptick was a phase, one of those minor irritations in marriage that quickly fade. But fade it did not. When she came home in the evening, she wished to talk about her new curriculum. She wished to fill me in on the minutia of her day-to-day. -day. Oh, Randall, she would say, they're talking now of giving me the chair. It's simply dreadful. Or, oh, Randall, you should have seen the look on Professor Combs' face. A woman breaking into their boys' club. I've no doubt he could barely stomach the thought. 
Oh, Randall this, and oh, Randall that. Randall, Randall, Randall. Even my own name was a poison on her lips. There was no need to tell me of these things. These things have no impact on my day-to-day. For the life of it, I could not understand what had changed. Why now she felt the need to bluster. I had never bragged about my tenureship because it wasn't necessary. It did not warrant breaking the peace. But one must not speak such things. Oh, no, never such things. These are things that rend the marriages in half, that bend careers near to the point of breaking. All I wanted was for things to return to how they had been. As one must have gathered by now, this led to a level of stress that I had thankfully kept myself distant from. Forced pleasantries with an erosion of nerves led to insomnia that led to a quiet night rambler, a quiet night randall. I became a creature of the dark. For thirty or forty-five minutes I would lay by her side, patiently waiting for her to sleep, knowing full well that sleep would evade me. Through the wee hours of the night I would walk our spacious halls, soothed by the soft echoes of my own footfalls, free from the O'Randalls that plagued me. It is my belief that these late-night wanderings kept me sane. Well, relatively sane. Better said, these quiet hours kept me free from madness absolute, a balm to my tired ears. One must not confuse my actions for those of a madman. Certainly, I am not some Edgar Allan Poe, telltale heart lunatic. As much as any other man, and perhaps more so, I understand the inner workings of my own mind. Some months after she was granted tenure and my own name became a prickle in my heart, a duality formed inside me. There was the rational voice that pulled me toward reason, the same reason I have allowed to shape the contours of my life. Undoubtedly, I can reason. I can plan, and whether I like it or not, I know the difference between what we, as a society, deem as right and what we deem as wrong. This act I was planning was truly vile. If caught, society would call me evil, irredeemable. And perhaps I am evil, but not mad. Not yet. There was another voice, a slithering, malevolent voice that whispered to me, No, not the malformed voice of my wife with her sickly R's, but a voice that impelled me towards self-preservation. Paradoxically, this voice, which I know is evil, told me that I would go mad, completely lose it, so to speak, if I did not alleviate my present circumstance. I had no choice but to trust this voice. Slowly, the idea began to form in my mind. I could have the silence all to myself. I could have the trees and my den and my plays all to myself. Certainly divorce was out of the question. Such a move could prove disastrous to my career. Two married professors separating? A scandal! Unspeakable! A juicy morsel for my less refined colleagues, undoubtedly. Divorce? A disaster. Out of the question. But a disappearance. A home invasion gone awry. What a tragedy that would be. Poor Randall, they would say. This campus must be hell for poor Randall without her. Good on the old man. Must be hell for poor Randall coming back. Poor Randall indeed. Above the trees, I see the rosy-fingered Eos color the sky with her pink breath. Vision is truly a blessing, and I treasure it with all my heart. All around me, I see everything. The soft grain on the outside porch, much in need of replacement. The clown's quiet eye on the handle of my knife. A drop of drying red on my shirt cuff, splatter in perfect harmony. I reach up to touch the side of my face. My fingers are deep crimson. My hand begins to shake. And indeed, I have been meticulous. My nightly roamings offered me a unique opportunity to think, to plan away from her questioning eyes and her rancid R's. I would have to stage it like a robbery. Robberies are a common occurrence, especially to the wealthy and secluded. A few self-inflicted stab wounds on my own person would be enough to incite reasonable doubt in the mind of any jury, especially after the testimony of a well-respected, nay, beloved college professor. 
never had I been more thankful for my dramatic background. A few gentle incisions on my own person and a handful of efficient punctures to my wife's chest and neck. Then blissful silence. The fabrication of tire tracks was out of the question, but certainly I could dress the scene to my liking. The destruction of the sliding glass doors from the outside, the concealment of my wife's jewelry, purchased from a jeweler while on vacation in southern France, a quiet purchase of the switchblade from a quaint pawn shop in downtown Portland, cash only, of course. What was it that Hamlet said on the slaying of the foolish Polonius? How now, a rat? Dead for a ducat. Dead. A ducat is nothing to a man prepared for destruction, and prepared for destruction was I. The mattress would be ruined, as would the rug, a fine Persian number my wife purchased at a conference in New York, but this destruction was a small price to pay for peace. A few hours ago, she returned. I made her Ville Forestière, her favorite, though I did have to hear the R, a small price to pay for my wife's last supper. At the time, I thought it would be one of her last. We went to bed at the same time, and quickly she fell asleep. And I waited. I waited. I uttered her name quietly. Nothing. Ever so slightly, with the utmost care, I arose, the carpet below my feet sweetly deadening the floorboards. Outside, the fir trees were black against the azure sky. From under the underside of the bed frame, I pulled out my tools, the switchblade, the gloves. Then I was a specter, my weight barely moving our bed, a night predator, so to speak. The blade was no longer a blade, it was an extension of my hand. I fell into character. Randall the thespian was gone. It was Randall the wife-killer that now perched over his sleeping wife. I extended the blade, softly for the first cut. Oh, Randall, she mumbled, and for a moment my stomach filled with lead. I was caught red-handed, all was lost. Oh, Randall, Combe's so upset. Mustn't tell Combe, mustn't tell Randall. She shifted her hips, rolled her head, and by God her eyes were closed. All my years sharing a bed when I slept first, all these quiet nights walked alone, and never had I noticed that she spoke in her sleep. Randall, oh Randall, she dreamed of me, sweet girl. She dreamed of the man that was about to annihilate her. I looked down into her face, then at her throat, that dreadful throat that for so long had tormented me. And in that moment, everything changed. Her throat was my undoing. I knew I could not murder her. It was all an act. Images of her twisting and turning beneath my body filled my head, but most of all the gory premonition of sound. Gurgles would fill the room, would release from her throat in rushes of blood and viscera echoing across the walls, dynamic and wet like the suction of wet rubber on skin or the slurping of a hound at its bowl. And this I simply could not take. I could not bear to hear such a sound. I was certain it would drive me out of my mind. Damn her throat and damn my marriage. Damn my career if need be, but I could not force my hand. But then, I knew what to do. I felt as Goethe must have felt while penning Faust, how Sophocles must have felt when the muses delivered him Oedipus Rex. Quickly, I walked toward the bathroom, leaving my gloves unattended on the bedside. The tile was cold on my feet, girding. I depressed the latch and outswung the shimmering blade, bright under the soft light. For a brief moment, I looked into the mirror and saw the eyes of a madman. A madman who would soon know peace. Before my will faltered, I inserted the tip of the blade into my ear canal and pressed deeply. The pain was bright, alive, sterilizing to my mind, and I dug deeper. A brief gasp filled the room, a soft whimper that I fought to suppress. Like water through a shallow canal, I felt the blood flow from my ruined ear and drip, drip, drip onto the tile. 
I realized briefly and with a great wave of joy that I could only hear the spatter of blood from my left ear. I passed the blade into my left hand and again I dug into the recesses of my skull, ruining my ear canal and irreparably damaging my eardrum. And then, blessed silence. The pain was nothing, was white and pure, but I was free. Nothing compared to the inner peace that I felt wash over me. Gentle night of quiet Randall had arrived. My wife still turned in her sleep. Perhaps she was speaking. So now, here I sit, staring out at the new dawn. The pain has abated, and I feel light. The world is new. I am new. My pajamas cling to my skin and the air around me is chilly. My wife will wake in a few minutes, and I wonder what she'll say. I thank God that I will never have to know. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on the wickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead leave the lights on. It's the only thing that'll keep the dreams and the things outside the light from coming in. You'll never hear them coming. You're here at the end of the show. You listened all the way, so you get a secret. If you'd like to attend our Atlanta show and get $10 off your purchase, you can head to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash wicked. Use the code wicked at checkout for $10 off. See you there. <laughs>